Well, if you're not there, you can turn to Psalm chapter 50. And as we are beginning this morning, I want you to consider something. How is your temper? Are you somebody that has a short fuse or a long fuse? Or are you somewhere in between? When you get angry, is it something that you do internally where maybe some people don't even realize what's going on? Or do you express it outwardly? Maybe even make it a little bit more pointed. I want you to think to the last time you were very upset. What was the issue? Was your anger justified or was it selfish? And what did you do with the circumstance? How did you handle the situation? For those of you who might have a longer fuse, I think you would have to admit that even for you, you have a breaking point, that there's a certain combination of circumstances in a given, in a, in a given uh, situation where, which will make you fail. And I think for all of us, we all at some level struggle with unrighteous anger. And again, some of you may just internalize it. I remember having a conversation with a youth many, many years ago, and it was kind of one of those core kids, kind of the, the, the star kids that it's like too good to be true almost. And I went up to them and I'm like, you're too good to be true. Like, how, you know, what, what do you struggle with? <laughs> because it seems like you've got everything together. And I thought it was a really wise answer because they said to me, no, all my stuff is inside. People just don't see it. The reason I wanted you to start by thinking this way is because I want this to be a means of contrast for you. God does get angry, but he does not get angry the way that we do. It's completely different than our relationships that we're involved in. Maybe you're someone with a very long fuse. Maybe you are a patient person, but you know somebody that has a very short fuse. I've had many of those in, in my life, and uh, it's hard to navigate those relationships. And so sometimes we take those ideas of how people are, and we impose them onto what God is like. And so when we read in the Bible that God is angry, we immediately think of this person. I want you to know that that is not the case. God does not act the way that we act. Having said that, I'm not diminishing his wrath at all. That's the purpose of this morning is because I want you to see how serious the Bible tells you to consider this particular attribute. God does not get angry the way that we get angry. He doesn't just lose control and snap. It's completely different. And so to kind of set the stage for that, we're starting in Psalm chapter 50. I want you to read with me here, just listen, verses 15 through 23, and I want you to hear these descriptions of sinful humanity, starting in verse 15. It says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, 
You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. So God is speaking in this passage. He is addressing mankind. He's addressing us. And inherently woven into fallen humanity is a lot of very serious, sinful flaws that he talks about. People that hate discipline. People that listen to God's word and it says that they cast God's word behind them. They, they discard his word. They are pleased with those who steal. They associate with adulterers. And then it talks about our mouth being loose with evil, deceit, and slander. Now, these are horrific. I mean, these are, any one of these would cause a person to be condemned, let alone having them all stockpiled as a description of fallen humanity. But the last one is the worst one. It says, God is speaking to us. This, the sin is this. He says, you thought I was like you. God is not like us. So I want to go back to my original question. What, what is your temper like? When you get angry, how does that demonstrate itself? God has wrath, but it is not like our anger. It's completely different. He doesn't reach a boiling point. He responds to sinfulness with perfect holiness, which, by the way, is the last attribute that we're going to consider next Sunday. And when he finally decides to act against sin, he displays his wrath. And that's a terrifying thing. In fact, the New Testament confirms that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My concern is that for some of you, you may not have come to salvation in Christ. You should be terrified if that's the case. And my hope and my prayer as we open up these passages that if if you haven't come to Christ for salvation, that you would listen very carefully to the warnings that Scripture gives you of, of what danger you're in, pressing imminent danger. But for those of us who know Christ, you're going to end this morning, hopefully, with thanksgiving, with praise. Because this is what you used to be like. This is the danger that you were in, but now that is settled forever. It's an amazing gift. So let's start with our definition. If you look at the top of your note sheet, we're going to pull this from Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's very short, but I want you to consider what he's laying before us. Definition of, is this. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Now, we don't normally think of God as hating, hating things. But I want you to see something. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 
one book over and listen to this description, starting in verse 16. It says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. So there's a couple things to notice about the, the force of how the Hebrew language describes these things. He starts by saying there are six things, but then he says there are seven. Why does he do that? That's the Hebrew language way of ramping up the intensity of the description. It would be uh, an emphasis. And he says that there are seven, which talks about being complete. The number seven oftentimes in Scripture talks about completeness. And so what we're, we're learning here is that God has a complete hatred of sin, and He wants us to have this underscored in our thinking. He starts with this description of, of haughty eyes. That's not a phrase that we're really familiar with in our, our current language. It means somebody who is prideful. So he starts with the person who's prideful. And just to piggyback off of what we talked about last Sunday, the second thing he mentions is that God hates a lying tongue. Just to kind of confirm, if, if there's any question in your mind that there's an excuse for telling a lie, there is no excuse for it. God hates those who tell lies. Because sin is not just a, a separate act, it is a person committing a sin. And this is why the, the sinner is in danger. And so not only does God hate sin, but He does with perfect hatred, which is going to tie into His holiness, which we'll end on next Sunday. But you can think about all of God's attributes. The, the way that he responds to iniquity, it, it is a necessity that he hate sin. Because if God is just, if God is perfectly good, and if he is majestic in his perfections, then he has to hate sin. It has to be consistent with his nature of who he is. So if you look at the, the way that the Old Testament primarily written in Hebrew and the New Testament, primarily written in Greek, the, the term for wrath are, are very similar. It talks about being angry. It talks about having fury. And it also has, in, in the Old Testament, it has a state of strong displeasure with a focus of taking action against the object of the hatred. So God is not just passively sitting back looking at people who commit sin, and he's just thinking that makes me angry, his wrath is going to cause him to act against it. And the reason that people get lulled into a sense that everything is okay, again, if you, if you haven't come to Christ for salvation and you think, no, life, life is pretty good. There's a lot of things that I enjoy. There's, there's peace at home, and I have good friendships, and I have 
hobbies that I like. And it's like, why, why would I need Christ? Because you've been lulled into thinking that God is never going to act against you. In fact, it says in our, our passage back in Psalm 50, when, when God lists all these sins, and then it says, I kept silence. It's like, why would, why would God be silent against these things? Because he is a God of patience. And he wants you to turn away from your sins so that you are not cast into eternal hell. But his patience runs out. He will eventually act. And so you need to listen to the warning while you can. And so let's look at a couple of passages that talk about God's wrath. We're going to choose a few from the Old Testament and a few from the news. So flip back to Exodus chapter 32 as we consider our scriptural basis for this topic. This is woven all throughout the scriptures. The way that God responds, again, he's not like us. He does not think like us. He responds differently in certain circumstances than we would anticipate. And so we have to understand the nature of, of God's wrath. Exodus 32, remember, we keep coming back to this, this portion. This has come up a lot in our study of the attributes because as God took the nation of Israel out of slavery and brought them to the mountain and he gave them his law, he's now teaching them what he's like. You have to remember, the Israelites did not know who God was or what he was like. And so he's revealing himself through Moses to these people and he's giving them the initial revelation of his word so that they understand exactly what his, his character is like. And so I want you to think for a minute. When they're at Mount Sinai, think about all that God had accomplished for the nation of Israel. I mean, he rescued them in miraculous ways. He raised up Moses to go and confront Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, he brought the plagues against Egypt. He then split the Red Sea. He, he rescued the nation. He provided water and food while they were traveling in the wilderness. And now he brings them to Mount Sinai and, and, and God himself descends to give his law to his people. I mean, the, the, the things that God has done for Israel is astonishing. And yet, look how God responds to their sin. Exodus 32, look at verse 6. Actually, just to kind of show you the, the reason God responds this way, let's, let's back up to verse 1 to get the context. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
Remember a couple of Sunday go, Sundays ago, we, we learned that every sin that we commit is rooted in idolatry. This is just another example. So human nature is to, it has this propensity to choose worship of, of things that are not the one true God. And this is exactly what Israel did. I mean, they, they have seen God act. And the moment that there are challenges for them when they can't find Moses, they create this idol. How does God respond? Verse 6. It says, So the next day they rose up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly, quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Now, as you kind of keep reading through the passage, how does Moses respond to this? Do you remember? Yeah, he pleads for the people, which is an amazing response. Moses saying, please, for, for the sake of your own name, don't do this. God was willing to destroy the nation that he just delivered and raise up another nation through Moses because their sin was so wicked in his sight. He had such wrath against their, their habit of idolatry that he was going to wipe them off. This is not a, this is not a bluff. This is not a, a false promise just to see how Moses is going to react. This is what God desires to do to those who struggle with idolatry. He says, let my anger burn against them and let me destroy them. After all he had done for the nation, the Lord hates iniquity and in, in particular the sin of idolatry. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is the close to the end of the life of Moses. He's not going to be able to enter the land because of his own sin. He's telling the people of all the things that God has done for them over the past 40 years. And then we get a description of God's wrath here as well. Deuteronomy 32 verse 37 And he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. You see what the, is being said here? You keep going after these false gods. When you get in trouble, then let them deliver you. That's what he's saying. Verse 39 See now that I am He, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. 
and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people for he will avenge the blood of his servants and he will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. And this is a graphic depiction of how the Lord responds to sin. He has wrath. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I chose just a, a few verses from the the first two chapters of the book of Romans, because Paul essentially for the first three chapters is building the biblical case for God's wrath against every single person because of sin. But I want you to see here, first of all, a contrast. And this is one of the, the passages that we studied when we were going through our foundations class looking at, at Romans. But I want you to look at the verse that we're very familiar with, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then verse 17 says, For in it, what is the it? power of the gospel, right? For in the gospel, he says in verse 17, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. Hang on to that word. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. But verse 18 tells us that something else is revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the gospel reveals His grace, His, His, His mercy, His righteousness, but if you have refused the gospel of Christ, God's wrath is going to be revealed from heaven against your sin. And the reason is, is because the, the condition of who we are is so corrupt. Listen to how it describes us here. It says that we do two things. We suppress the truth. That's bad enough. God has, has told us what's true. We have heard God speak and we push down that truth because we don't want to listen to it. We suppress it. We ignore it. We, we push, push it down and try to cover it up. That's bad enough. But he says the way that you do it, the way that you suppress it, you do it in unrighteousness. You're compounding your guilt. You're compounding your 
your sin. In fact, Paul also describes the human condition as people who are inventors of evil. So God's wrath is going to be revealed from heaven. Again, the person that's been lulled into thinking that life is okay and I don't need Christ and that's fine for you, but my life is pretty good. The Bible is telling you wrath is going to be revealed against you. So listen and be warned and come to Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul builds his case even more here. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. So the picture that he gives us here is the person that thinks that their life is okay apart from Christ. The warning is, Wrath is being stored up against you. You picture a wall. You picture a, a dam that is holding back a wall of water. And the more water that is being stored up and that dam breaks free, the weight of that water is going to crush you. And Paul says, if you don't know Christ, wrath is being stored up against you. You are in imminent danger because of this. And why is that? Verse 5, he says, you are stubborn. Your heart will not repent. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody about the gospel and they just, they won't listen. They have no interest or they argue against it. That's the condition of what sin does to people. That's why when we share the gospel, we need to pray for the heart of the listener and pray that God would be merciful to them that they would open up their eyes. I was just going over my notes this morning just in review and, and thinking about a few people in particular that I know have not come to salvation yet, and they, will, they, they refuse. I was praying for them by name this morning because they're in danger. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 28. This is, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This verse is, is a cause of rejoicing for those of you who are in Christ for salvation. You have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You are a part of God's family. You have been brought into His, his kingdom cannot be taken from you, it cannot be moved, it cannot be overthrown, but for those who are outside the kingdom, God is going to consume you with fire because of his wrath against sin. He, he, is, he makes it personal. Back in, in Romans chapter 2, 
it says that he will render to each person according to their deeds. God's wrath is not just a, a, a general sweeping thing against the world. He's going to look at your life in particular, your specific sins that you've committed. He has an exhaustive list of how you have broken his law, and his wrath is going to be poured out against you personally because of how you have violated his law if you're not in Christ. Or, as a believer, again, think about the people that you know in your life that have not come to salvation. They're in danger. We need to warn them. But before we get to our evangelism, I want you to see that God's wrath is also displayed in the person of Christ. Normally when we think of Jesus, we think of him as in the gospel accounts of someone who is merciful, someone who is gracious and patient, healing people. He's come to be a sacrifice for us because he, he was willing to pay the price for your sin. And all those things are, are true and, and they're legitimate. But you have to remember that, that Christ is all of the attributes of the Father and the Spirit as well. And Jesus has a hatred for sin. We, we get a glimpse of that. I want you to start in John chapter 2. At the very beginning of his, even actually before his public ministry began, when he was choosing his disciples, we get the glimpse of his righteous wrath against sin. John chapter 2, look at verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated on their, at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus makes a very clear statement. He goes into the temple and he sees the unrighteousness that's taking place, that people were using this place of worship as a way to make profit. He's angry. Now, I don't want you to picture, again, I don't want you to picture Jesus as flying off the handlebars like we see people go into a fit of anger. That is not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing here is even more terrifying than the person that has the short fuse that is scary to be around. He looks at what's happening in the temple. He then goes and creates a whip. This is calculated. This is thought out. He's in perfect self-control. And he goes into the temple and he cleans house. And it says that zeal for my father's house consumes me. This is not not just an emotional flare. This is a complete consumption of desire for the holiness of God. He turns over the tables. He drives people out. He rebukes them. And this is at the beginning of his ministry. And this is just a glimpse of 
Jesus' righteous wrath against sin. Now, at the end of his ministry, turn to Mark chapter 14. We see an example of how Jesus himself had to endure God's wrath because he knew that the only way of escape was for people to have a substitute, a righteous substitute for their sin. I want you to listen to the way that Jesus anticipates what's going to happen on the cross as he's praying in the garden. Mark 14, look at verse 32. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. As you look at the the different accounts of Jesus in the garden, the language here is that Jesus kept falling to the ground. He realized what was about to take place on the cross, and out of grief over the wrath that he was going to bear, he kept falling on his face and praying, remove this cup. That's an Old Testament illusion. When Jesus mentions the cup, he's talking about God's wrath. Listen to Psalm 75, verse 7. It says, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. This comes back in the book of Revelation, that the cup is God's unmixed wrath against sin. And Jesus in the garden says, I am about to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. What happened to Christ on the cross as horrific as the physical punishment was, it was nothing. That was not his concern. His concern was the wrath. He was going to have to drink down the cup. In fact, he prayed for it to be removed because he realized what was going to take place. And yet Jesus, knowing what was coming better than any of us can fathom, because he's equal to the Father. He's eternal. He has seen God's wrath. He's seen the Father's wrath poured out on people in the Old Testament, the record that we have. This is the wrath that Jesus was going to have to endure on the cross, and he chose to do so so that he could pay for your sin. It's incredible. He went to the cross for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 
It says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols, that's repentance, to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The reason you can escape God's wrath is because Jesus drank the fullness of the cup. That's just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We see him clear the temple. We see at the end of his ministry, right before he goes to the cross, he communicates to us how horrific the Father's wrath is. But then when he goes to heaven, and now we're waiting for Jesus to return, the book of Revelation tells us that when Christ comes back, that he is going to pour out his wrath on those who have refused to bow the knee. To him as Lord. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're entering into the Christmas season where we will remember a baby being placed in a manger of, of no reputation, of no significance. This life of Jesus when he took on a human body one of mercy and patience, and for the most part, the world ignores. That's at his first coming. When Jesus returns, no one is going to be able to ignore him. Listen to what this passage tells us. Revelation chapter 6, look at verse 12. It says, I looked... This is John as he's writing. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the skies fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll, when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and, and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is desperation. This is people that are realizing that they have rejected the gospel, the offer of peace and salvation, and now they're begging for the rocks to fall on them and kill them because they don't want to endure the wrath of the return of Christ. It's even more graphic turning to Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, 
and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Listen. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The imagery of the wine press. You've all seen it. Back in those days, they would put the, the grapes into a container called a wine press, and they would stomp on the grapes to release the juices to collect them to make wine. The description here is the harder that you stomp on the grapes, the higher the splatter of the grape juice. Jesus, when He returns, is going to see rebellious humanity as a wine press, and blood is going to be spilled. In fact, Revelation says that the the splatter of the winepress is going to go up to the height of the bridle of the horses. Such a fierce, commanding outpouring of wrath, it's going to be a slaughter. That's the second coming of Christ. And he even goes on here, look in verse 17. This is, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. There will be nobody who escapes. Jesus came, our song says, meek and mild at his first coming. His second coming is going to be holy wrath. So what application does this have for us? I want to offer you a couple. For the sake of time, as I, I need to get through three sections here. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you the passage for you to write down, and I'll read it for you. But I just want you to listen. When you consider God's wrath, it should be restraint for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, Moses tells the Israelites, he says, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Moses is saying, remember what God did against your sin 
so that when you go into the land, you choose not to sin. So considering God's wrath should be a restraint for you. Secondly is it should motivate us. It should compel us to want to share the gospel with the lost. In John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You guys realize that those who are not saved, they're not waiting for wrath to come. It says that God's wrath is on them right now. And the only reason that his wrath has not consumed them is because of his patience to give them an opportunity to repent. They're not neutral. They are currently in danger. So we need to take opportunity and pray for the heart and soul of the person around us that does not know Christ. Lord, give me an opportunity to tell them that they need to escape from Christ because they are under wrath. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So we need to tell people, take advantage of God's patience that you can come to salvation. Because I don't want to see you come under God's wrath. So it should motivate us to share the gospel. Thirdly, for those of you who are in Christ, you should be gathering with the church this morning with a heart of thankfulness. This is who you were before salvation. You were under God's holy wrath, and that's been removed. There's no hesitation anymore. God has welcomed you into his presence because of the Lord Jesus. I want you to listen to this, the description in Ephesians chapter 2. This is addressed to believers. And listen to all of the things that are in the past tense for those who are saved. It says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. But for the believer, that's not true anymore. You are no longer dead. He says, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what our past was. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We listen to this description of God's perfect hatred for sin, and if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never experience His wrath. You've been saved from that, and it's permanent. That's why we gather as the church. We gather to worship the one who has saved us. So, and especially for those of you who have been in Christ for a, a little bit, sometimes it's easy for us to get, forget that and to be lulled into, well, this is just how it is. But it's good for us to be, remember, to, to be reminded 
I was under wrath, and that's gone because of what Christ did for me. There's nothing that I could do, but he accomplished it. He drank that cup on your behalf and then welcomed you gladly into his family. And so think about your salvation in Christ as you sing the songs this morning, as you listen to the content of the words, as you listen to the description of what's going to happen in the future. We're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 25 in the main service talking about the wrath of the Lamb is coming. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should, that should fuel your worship this morning with thanksgiving and praise. What an amazing gift. Let's pray together as we close. Father, I know that the world has so many wrong ideas of Christ. And one of the lopsided understandings is that He is only a God of love. And they don't understand that they are under wrath. Father, thank You for Your patience with those who have not yet come to salvation. And we pray, Father, that they would come under the hearing of the gospel so they could escape the wrath of the Lamb, while they have opportunity. And Lord, thank you for redeeming us and bringing us into your family. Thank you for sealing us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for continuing to teach us from your word. We praise you that you've given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And that we're going to be with Christ and we're going to reign with him in the future. It's, it's unthinkable what you have accomplished for your children. And so, Lord, let our hearts be thankful and let us praise you, not only this morning as we gather, but as we wake up and as we engage in, in worship as we start each day, just to be grateful for all that you've done for us. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your kindness displayed to us in the death and the resurrection of your Son. And we give you praise in his name. Amen.